It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Chris Simchek, co-founder and CEO of SDLC Partners, a business and technology consultancy. SDLC delivers commercial-grade solutions to clients that are optimizing and transforming their operations, experiences, and business models. His 30-plus year technology career includes success in growing businesses, building strong teams, and implementing strategies that drive growth. Prior to co-founding SDLC, Chris spent 15 years with a publicly traded global consultancy where he led sales and operations. Active in the broader technology community in Pittsburgh, Chris has a passion for accelerating the value of technology as seen through his executive support of women in technology, big brothers and big sisters, and various regional STEM initiatives. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Computer Science from Edinburgh University and resides in the Pittsburgh area with his wife and two children. They all enjoy the outdoors, having hiked in many areas of the USA. Chris Simchik, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you here. And uh, I, I always enjoy having uh, tech-savvy CEOs on board. <laughs> we were able to get right in and get right to I it. I don't know if my kids would say I'm tech-savvy. <laughs> <laughs> well, our kids are always going to be more tech-savvy than us. Uh, for sure. Chris. But uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, just to kind of start things up, how, how are you doing during these interesting pandemic times? How's your family? How's the company? And you know, how's this kind of impacted your business? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, the um you know, it's been a challenging time. Um I think from a family perspective and friends and extended family everyone is healthy and Good. uh we've been uh you know abiding by all the lockdown measures and safety measures and and that's carried on into the the business as well. You know, we have a uh, two times a week, uh, leadership team has a COVID call, and mm. we talk about what's impacting our employees and our customers, yeah. and and we try to adapt and adopt uh, you know measures to make sure that our employees are safe. We're right. mostly remote. Uh, yeah. We have offices open, but you know, in uh, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and right. there are restrictions on occupancy. So um, I was actually in the office all morning this morning, and mm. it was great to see some uh, employees there and be able to you know, with safe distance, interact and sure. and collaborate. So um, yeah. we're weathering it. The company has uh, been stable and I say stable is good in this, yeah, uh, right, this right. time. And we've uh, been showing some nice pipeline growth and good. we have, uh, I think a little bit of our demand starting to return. So, you know, 
challenge uh, through Q2 and into Q3, but really optimistic heading into Q4. That's great. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Chris, and glad that he, also that everyone's safe and doing well. So let, let, let's talk a little bit about you. We always kind of like to start these with the early years. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Sure. Um, I was born and raised in a really small town in Pennsylvania, uh, sort of north to north central um, okay. of the western part of the state, uh, Johnsonburg, Pennsylvania. Outside of Pittsburgh, I presume. Outside of Pittsburgh, about three hours north, almost to the New York State border. And um, really in the middle of the Allegheny National Forest. So I'm a kid that grew up in a in a forest town and uh paper industry was the big industry right with a whole bunch of small businesses supporting that um yeah, yeah. was mom my, or dad uh, involved in that business is that yeah a, a my dad worked in that business for uh you know 39 wow. years something wow. like that right. and um most of my aunts and uncles and grandparents spent time in that paper mill or in wow. supporting businesses around it yeah. Um, yeah. i lived about two blocks from the mill when i grew up uh all the way up through about age 12. Um, mm. you know, we didn't have a, a lot, uh, materially, although I didn't recognize that until, uh, about that age. And, right. uh, it was, um, you know, really a, a nice place to grow up. It was, uh, certainly God's country and, yeah, well, uh, you know, everybody were, uh, focused on outdoors and outdoor activities and, you know, everybody that I associated with and were friends with, uh, hunting, fishing, biking, hiking, et cetera. So really a nice place to grow up. Nice part of the country. Brothers and sisters? One sister, Mm -hmm. uh, five years younger. So she had uh, a little different experience growing up than I did. uh, By the time she sort of can recall things, we had moved out of the downtown area, you know, two blocks from the paper mill. And uh, my parents were able to, you know, build a small house uh, out in the country. And uh, so she has... uh, more memories of that. My early childhood was, you know, walking to school and right. um, playing on the avenues and the streets and uh, playing sports and, and wiffle ball on the streets, et cetera. So awesome. um, she doesn't have those things, but, uh, <laughs> you know, she remembers the countryside for sure. What were some of the things that you remember from, you know, mom and dad? Any, uh, you know, inspirational moments or things that you recall growing up that had an influence on, you know, kind of who you became later in life? Yeah, family life was pretty simple for us. Mm-hmm. It was uh, we had a great extended family, lots of aunts and uncles and cousins, and I remember us doing just. And it could have been because uh, you know where we were as well, but uh, both you know socioeconomically as well as uh, where we lived, lots of picnics. There was a state right. park nearby. We spent a lot of time there. Um, my family, uh, they all had day jobs and then you know entrepreneurial. Uh, jobs as well. Uh, It was a a family that acted like a community in itself. Um, Everybody chipped in on any little project that someone had going on at their home or their property. And, you know, family members, um, you know, worked hard, played hard. Mm. Uh, You know, those those gatherings were where we um, told a lot of stories or as kids, we heard a lot of stories. Right. Right. You know, some of the philosophy was shared and it always seemed to be that the philosophy was rooted in, you know, work ethic, uh, work hard, play hard. Um, and to this day, you know, I, I have a hard time just sort of 
kicking back. Uh, there's always something to <laughs> always be something done. Always something to do, right? Right. right. Yeah. Well, you so. mentioned entrepreneurial uh, activities. Were you involved in some as well? Were there things that you did, uh, you know, beyond the ubiquitous paper route or other things that uh, raised money when you were a kid? Yeah, when I was, um, I guess, around 13 or 14, I had uh, a lawn cutting business. <laughs> I uh, umpired uh, baseball for little kids. I played sports all my life. And, you know, so I umpired and made a few dollars there. And we had um, we had this uh, this cleanup uh, town back then, cleanup mm. committee or crew, ah. and uh, they would pay us to to go clean up you know, trash along the oh, roadways and things cool. like that. So, yeah, yeah you know, entrepreneurial. I, I think the biggest uh, money maker I had was probably the lawn cutting business because right, right. You know, that was um, that was one where you could do four or five lawns uh, on a weekend and, and make a few dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Great. What about school? Were you a good student? Yeah, I I, I think I uh, probably as anybody might say you could always do better, but I. Um, yeah, I tell my kids there's no reason not to have A's. That's your job growing right, up. Right, um, right. I was a good. My dad student. used to say getting an A was getting like getting a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, I was a student athlete, uh, so hmm. I, you know, I did spend a lot of time with sports and yeah. you know, football which, and which, baseball. Which sports? Yeah, were, were your favorites? Yeah, football, baseball, yeah. and track were the right. three that I really focused on the most, and yeah. you know, probably. Uh, toss up between football and baseball as my sort of passions. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, I went to a, uh, in my hometown through grade school and then all the way through 12th grade, I went to a Catholic school, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which was out, the high school was outside of my hometown. It was in the neighboring town. So all right. that was an interesting transition because uh, my entire family, cousins, et cetera, had all gone to the local high school. And uh, my parents decided that um, I wasn't going to do that. Mm. And they didn't really um, share with me a lot of the logic behind it. They just said, look, you're you're going to continue on with Catholic school, which yeah. you know was a financial hardship for them because they had to pay tuition for Catholic school. Right, but right. Um, for me, it, it taught me a few lessons because yeah. you had to um, – it was a new town. Um, sure. There were kids who already uh, knew each other. You had to, you know, socially, you know, break into the ranks. And, right. um, and my town, you know, was neighbored by two other towns. And my town was, you know, the paper town. So it was a smelly town. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the other two towns were uh, more affluent than where I grew up. So you had to overcome those hurdles. And right, it was good, right. good learning, yeah. good lessons. You know, I, I went yeah. to school up in Oregon. And so I know what a mill smells like. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> It does have a very right. unique flavor, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely yeah. does. <laughs> so, uh, did you work through, you know, high school and so forth? Was that part of, you know, what was expected for, you know, extra pocket money, saving towards college? You know, to, how did your mom and dad kind of think about that as you would graduate from high school? Yes, uh, all the way through high school, I always had odd jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, usually more of the manual type, the grass cutting, splitting wood, selling wood that I had split right, those kinds right, of things. Right. Um, and then the balance of my time in high school was, you know, sports related. Um, once I got out of high school and, and into college, uh, my, my dad, um, helped me to get a summer job in the paper mill, which they oh. had a program for college students. Uh, you were manual labor. It wasn't anything sexy, but um, hourly, was, I'm uh, sure. <laughs> hourly. You joined the union. Yeah. You joined wow. the union. Oh, cool. And, okay. um, 
Yeah, and uh, he insured. That was his college insurance program. He, ah. I didn't know this till my senior year. A funny, quick story. Um, <clears throat> he had me uh, have the the crappiest jobs in the mill, and <laughs> you know, one of my jobs really was um, with a wheelbarrow going into the center of the mill where the 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 wood chips are cooked down into pulp, oh um, and cleaning this oatmeal looking stuff off of the floor one wheelbarrow load at a time and you had to wheel it outside and you're only allowed to be in there for 10 minutes at a time. And then you had to take a break on the outside because it was so hot. Right. Um, I get to my senior year and I'm talking to the guy who assigned us, you know, our work. And I had this really cushy job my senior year going into my senior year and his (laughs) name was Al. I'll never forget. And uh, I said, Al, how did I end up? Thanks. how did I end up doing this? And he said, that was your dad. He said, I would have never given you all those crappy jobs. He said, he wanted to make sure that you stayed in college and that he knew that this work wasn't for you. So oh, I love it. It was a great story that you know, I'll great. never forget. Yeah. yeah so. Oh, awesome. So you went to Edinburgh uh, University and yes. uh, what, was it a foregone conclusion you'd go to college? Was that something mom and dad had done and expected you of, or were you kind of the first in your family to, to move forward with that? First in the family to, yeah, awesome. to move forward with college. Yeah, and yeah. I, um, that was part of their design of having me go to the Catholic school because there right. was a pretty high degree of 90 some percent yeah. of kids yeah. going on to college. And, nice. uh, yeah, they really wanted me to, um, you know, get a degree and, and find a passion. And, um, you know, I, I didn't really have much guidance around college and I had a number of opportunities and it was, it was really interesting, but Edinburgh felt right, right to me after Mm. doing a bunch of tours and they had a pretty good computer science program, uh, in that day. So, uh, well, and those were early days too. I noticed you got your BS there and, you know, not a lot of computer science degrees were in those early eighties. What, what, what kind of, you know, stirred you towards that, which has obviously been very formative for your career. Yeah, I had a uh, class in my senior year of high school mm. in technology, and you know we shared um, you know computers in this class, yeah. and I thought it was really interesting and really neat uh, to be able to interface and interact with this you know machine and get it to do things of you know value. And now, now, for those of us, for those that are listening, that are millennials, this is Chris did not have a laptop that he not used, at all. right? This was More what, like a, a boat anchor. <laughs> was it? Was it really one of those ones that took up half the half the room? Or it, it was a like a large desktop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and we only had a few, and so you'd share them. You know, two or three kids at a machine, um, usually because but, they were so big, you couldn't get that many in a room. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah. And forget printers and all that. Oh, we had yeah. one, you know. Yeah, right, um, right. And it was but, usually in another room, you know, some, somewhere nearby. It was. Right? It absolutely was. Yeah, my goodness. But, uh, yeah, so I took some interest there. And I remember having a conversation with our our guidance counselor, mm. who was also the teacher for that class. Right. And I was asking them about technology and, you know, mm. what could I read about it? And they gave me some news articles and, you know, magazine uh, articles to read about technology and um, IBM and digital. Those were the, you know, EDS. Those were the big companies back then. Sure. And sure. Um, yeah, so I thought, well, you know, this is new. Um, it's interesting. Um my guidance counselors seemed to think I had the aptitude for it. Mm. And, uh, and so that's what I, from day one in college, that's, I I knew I was going to do something with technology. Yeah. Any regrets looking back? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. I, my my secondary interest or love was uh, architecture, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, I, I will still putz around, you know, uh, with some drawing and and especially if we're doing a project around the house, you know, I, I think I still have skills there. Right. So I try to <laughs> you know, draw something up and, and, uh, convey it to someone, but no, none at all. I mean, I think that, um, you know, maybe even some blind luck that, you know, jumping into technology in the eighties, um, you know, was, was really smart. And, yeah, absolutely. you know, I, we've encouraged our kids and they're both off, uh, in technology themselves at college. So, um, you know, it t- took some pulling of teeth, but uh, yeah. at first, but they they love it now. Now, your first job out of college, I believe, is is only been the second company you've ever worked for, right? Because That's I think you went direct to cyber, and of course, we'll, we'll talk about SDLC and the founding of that in a few minutes. So, what what made you select them? Were they, you know, did, did they uh, recruit on campus? Was it, uh, you know, kind of again some of your own analysis that led you to them? How did you uh, make that decision? Well, the um, right out of school, I got hired by EDS. They had okay. recruited on campus, and right. uh, I spent time with EDS. Great company, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, good training. And that was exactly great training. Uh, I was in some of their government contracts business, and then when General Motors bought EDS, right, that's um, right, remember that things sort of shifted. It all became you're you're going to live in Detroit and move to Detroit, et cetera. And nothing against Detroit; it's a great town. I've been there yeah. many times, but yeah. you know, I was looking to get back closer to uh, to home and right. Pittsburgh. Right. You know, at that time. Uh, still wasn't, you know, a booming tech economy like it is today. Um, right. But if you had yeah. EDS, IBM, digital, maybe a few others on your resume, y- you had a good start. Good and leg up. Yeah. So I got hired in Pittsburgh in a consulting business that was a small uh, local business that then was purchased by Cyber. Okay. And I spent 15 years then yeah. at Cyber. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And and uh, business development was kind of your role, more marketing and sales, or can tell us a little bit about that progression through Cyber. <laughs> yeah, I was doing client delivery work at first. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, and at one point um, at Cyber, they said, you know, you need to be in internal operations and sales, mm. you know, the, mm. the, uh, ability to, I think, communicate with customers and understand the technology implications. Um, you know, was that secret sauce at the time that they right. were looking for. And, you know, so I moved over and, and started to learn about sales and I spent, a uh, probably about the next four or five years of my career, just doing sales and then sales management. And then hmm. um, they came to me and and uh, they were in acquisition mode and they were doing a bunch of acquisitions and they had purchased a couple of companies and I bounced around the country helping to integrate those. Uh, spent a fair amount of time in New York, New Jersey, Marketplace, five, five and a half years there. And then uh, second tour of duty sort of back to Pittsburgh because at that time I had um, a corporate uh, job in sales uh, as VP of sales and okay. moved back to the Pittsburgh market because it didn't matter where you lived. You were on a plane, you know, four days a week. So, right. um, right. so came closer to home and that was my second tour of duty yeah. uh, back in Pittsburgh. And I've been here ever since. Do you remember the first time you started managing people, Chris? I do. It was, um, we had an acquisition that we had done and it was, uh, they had a small startup office and then right. they acquired a company in New Jersey. 
And I went there to uh, go run it, help integrate it. You know, <laughs> right, and, right. You know, I I won't say it on the podcast, but I remember uh, the CEO of the company saying to me, "Don't mess it up." Yeah, he, didn't, right. he didn't use "mess it up." But yeah, that, that's yeah, what he I said, can imagine. Right? Yeah, I've had a few uh, of those conversations. Over but time. Uh, that's yeah, great. I was 28 years old. I, wow. I think I was the youngest market manager for them uh, at that time, and. Yeah. I had this new acquisition and I had a startup office and had to figure out how to make that work and uh, integrate the two and, you know, make one really good business out of it. Thinking back to those early years, what, what were some of the earliest lessons you learned, particularly in leadership and management, Chris? Yeah, I think that, you know, as I look back at that time, um, good ideas come from all places in the mm. organization. So true. Um, I think that, you know, being a good listener and understanding, you know, sort of why things are done a certain way and, and what kind of results are they getting, um, being able to, you know, set expectations mm. and, and then inspect against those expectations right. and that management of accountability, I think is really important. Mm. Um, I, I didn't learn it at the time, but I certainly did later in my leadership uh, time, which is, you know, building collaborative teams and spending the energy up front to be really clear and engaged uh, on the why. Sure. Um, and then I think also, you know, keeping a good balance of, of skepticism, mm. um, because I think sometimes we can easily get tunnel vision around decisions we've made or, right. or directions where you get that group think going and, uh, you know, healthy conflict and good skepticism around, you know, testing the hypotheses. The, those were yeah. things that really, you know, to this day, uh, I still talk about when we do um, roundtable sessions with employees and they right. ask about leadership or ask about how we think about the business. And we like to be transparent about it. And so we sure. talk about those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, we've all had mentors. You mentioned the CEO you've had, and I've had, I've had a couple like that as well that, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes, you know, jokingly, but sometimes seriously fear, you know, using fear more than perhaps motivation. But uh, we've also, you know, had a few, you know, tormentors along the way. And, uh, can, can, can you remember a situation, again, no names needed, where, you know, you maybe observed behavior that you thought, wow, that's just not aligned with the way that I think people really should be managed. And, and you know, how that impacted the way you... Uh, uh, led others as you continue to grow your businesses. Yeah, I clearly remember this one. The uh, as we <laughs> as we probably all do. The um, and, and this taught me a, a good lesson that I'll get to uh, at the end here. But you know, when I think about um, this particular individual, they were a leader that would just beat you up about mm -hmm. the numbers, and they would beat the team up, and they would demoralize the team, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't spend the energy um, to gain any insight to participate in helping to resolve any challenges. Mm. Um, they had almost zero long-term view. Everything was short-term tactical. Mm. And um, uh, this leader was definitely not strategic and gave no runway on people. And the thing that I, I disliked the most is they felt that people were all expendable, just mm. give me a new one. Mm. And, and I think that was such a terrible way to um, – try to get anything productive out of yeah. out of team members and you know in consulting you're in a people business That's and right. yeah. you know people come first and and you have to create the environment for people to be successful and yeah. when i look back at that and and the lessons learned there um 
you know, you, you, ju- you just can't lead from, you know, metrics and you can't lead yeah. from the back. You have to yeah. be in the middle and alongside the team. And especially with new projects and new efforts, you know, it's, it's too um, easy to get off track early. And so being able to be strategic and translate that to, you know, the actions and tactics and be alongside the team. So mm. you get that real-time feedback. I, I think that's key. And I don't believe at all that that is micromanagement. I think that's leadership in my opinion. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So 17 years ago, uh, more or less, uh, SDLC Partners was formed. And, you know, you'd had a pretty long career, 14, 15 years at Cyber and its various iterations. What was kind of the motivation behind you making the decision, you know, I'm going to go out and do this on my own? Yeah. And with my two partners, the um, we felt and then did, did you work together? Were you all together at Cyber? <laughs> we did, did at different times. Okay, yeah, got it. At different times, yeah. guys that you knew then. Yep. That you heard and about. Um, you know, we felt that there was a gap in the market. We felt mm. like there was a a solution provider um, service opportunity uh, with our customers um, and the customers we had grown to know over the many years uh, working in the industry right. um, that fit in between, you know, staffing kind of firms. Uh, and the big four, and right. that was focused on execution and and competency in that space. Um, that could bring real solutions at real value and really be accountable for helping to solve problems and get work done, really mm. execute. And that's not to say that those other you know big four firms don't, but right. you know at the same time, I think that you know they traditionally prefer to be in the the design and strategy arena, um, they can execute, uh, I think some of them better than others. Um, but I felt like there was a gap and my partners did too. And so we designed the company to be aimed as that solution provider that's ready to meet the customer Mm. where the customer is from an evolution perspective. Mm. Not everything Mm. is a, you know, an enterprise project. Sometimes there are, you know, micro solutions and departmental solutions that have great impact for segments of the business. And, and you don't always need, you know, one of the big four to help you do that. And so we carved that space. Mm. Um, and that's where we've been very focused and not only locally uh, in, in the Pittsburgh market, but right. now outside of the Pittsburgh market, doing work for customers in adjacent markets and yeah. starting to expand, especially in our healthcare footprint. It's awesome. Very successful. You guys have been around 17 years. How many offices now? How many employees? How many consultants? Yeah, we have uh, still the one office here in Pittsburgh, okay. uh, about 400 employees. Wow. And, uh, you know, the... The majority of those folks are in the Pittsburgh market. There are some that are outside of the market, but majority right. of them, 90% uh, in the Pittsburgh market. Yeah. So you're serving that market and then only in the healthcare vertical or, or multiple verticals? Multiple verticals. Yeah. Um, healthcare is probably our, our dominant set, you know, yeah. 60% or so more of our work. Um, and then in outside markets, uh, we predominantly go to those markets with a healthcare domain expertise first. Right, um, right. But we do work in retail. We do work in financial services and transportation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I recently heard that some CEOs are uncomfortable, you know, having their answers questioned rather than their questions answered <laughs> in meetings. You know, have you been in that situation before? And so how do you handle that? Yeah. You know, this is funny um, because we have this saying around the company that you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm, and like that. Um, 
you know, I, I think whether you're selling to a customer, uh, you have to be willing to get into that undiscovered territory to find out what the real issues are and what the real problems mm. are. And yeah. if your internal, um, you know, back office operations, leadership, you have to be willing to put yourself out there and have that healthy conflict and, and have questions asked, uh, you know, every right. month we do a round table meeting. Um, and that roundtable meeting is, you know, a random assembly of employees and they can, we can talk about anything they want to talk about. And we get all kinds of questions. We get mm. questions about the strategy. We get questions around the benefits. We get questions around the finances. Um, you know, it, it's really healthy, I think, to be transparent. Right. And I think if you're transparent, you're less uncomfortable. It's yeah. like, yeah. and also I will say, um, being open to say, I don't know. I don't know right. the answer to that. That's a great question. I, I don't know. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, what do you think? And, um, you know, share share that vulnerability with people in the company and let them yeah. know that we're human too. I don't have all the answers. If we were counting on me to have all the answers, we would never be 400 employees, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, this is really a, an a evolution of a team with, you know, good thinking. Do your consultants do quite a bit of diagnostics up front when they come into a new client and ask a lot of hard questions around the types of things they're doing? Or or do, or do clients typically come to you with, we've got a problem and, and you've got kind of a ready-made solution? Yeah, some of both. Um, yeah. I, I would say about uh, uh, probably, you know, 40, 50% of our, our engagements start with some form of assessment and right. problem discovery and, you know, workflow or process review, um, and then into a myriad of what's possible. You know, we talk yeah. about the art of the possible in the company and, and we like to give our clients options. And yeah. so, you know, here's, here's, uh, you know, short term, medium term, long term solution set, and let's meet you where you are. Um, there are times where we're called in because, you know, I have this pressing, project. I need to get it over the hurdle and, uh, my team's great, but I can't take them off of what they're doing. And I need your team to come in and yeah, get it done. Yeah. Get, um, get the execution. Yeah. Done. So yeah. we do a yeah. lot of that work as well. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I know that uh, in our work in executive search, we have a you know a deep dive that we go through, and part of what we do is we ask the uncomfortable questions, you know, because yep. sometimes so often people will rely on a job description when they need someone new, and then don't realize just how um, you know uh, common and vanilla <laughs> those types of things can be. And you know, when you when you train your people to ask those difficult questions on the outside, be careful because they'll start asking them on the inside too. Correct. But uh, you know, it does keep people sharp and, and, uh, you know, meeting the customer's needs as well as employee needs at the end of the day is really what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that the, the value in that kind of dialogue is the discovery, right? The, um, because everybody believes that they have, you know, a view or a handle on a certain situation. And then when you start to explore it or you get different eyes looking at it, um, and asking different questions, very often we find ourselves in a different place and it's, it's the world that, uh, we live in versus the world we want to live in sometimes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of the questions we always ask after we go through a diagnostics of what the job's about and qualifications, we'll say, you know, about halfway through the interview, what's the one thing you'd like to see done differently as the result of the hire? 
half the time, Chris, it's not anything they mentioned before. You know, I mean, it is something totally new. We we'll go, really? Oh, that's very interesting. Let's talk more about that. Right. And, you know, sometimes that really gets at that's the core that of what's going on. Process. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. that, you know, when you get clients in that mode, you really see, you know, the yeah. opportunity for the combination of capabilities to bring forth those outcomes that are really better than just the, the generic, uh, here's what I need and here's where I plan to go with it. Right. You know, you really right. dig in. We talked a little uh, earlier about your early leadership lessons. You've 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 had pretty much two careers. You've been pretty much the same time in, in in both those operations. How would you say most recently your leadership style has evolved, particularly as you've gone from four hundred, you know, plus employees? Yeah, I, I certainly continue to evolve, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I I fashion myself as a bit of a student uh, of right. leadership, and I do a lot of. Um, reading and a lot of training and a lot of seminars and, you know, try to bring back to the organization, you know, new thinking to challenge ourselves. I think as the organization has grown, we've had other leaders who've come in and helped to shape that as well. Mm. I've definitely seen my profile uh, change, still a driver persona, uh, but at the same time, uh, very focused on people growth and success. Um, Mm. Also, you know, think a lot about what are the strengths and weaknesses of our leadership team. Sure. Um, what do we do really well and where do we struggle the most and what development do we need? And, you know, we've, um, and for a company our size, we've invested at all levels in quite a bit of leadership, both internal programs that we've developed. Mm. Uh, we use uh, DDI here in Pittsburgh. They're, well, I say here in Pittsburgh, they're a global company that happens to be headquartered here and right. we're fortunate to be able to use them. We've used them for, you know, our lead, our manager, our senior manager, and our executive level training. Um, and that's helped to shape, um, you know, the the skill sets that we really value. Right. Um, that ability to be, you know, open and transparent, that, that's a skill that you really have to work at. Um, yeah. It doesn't yeah. feel natural uh, sometimes. Yeah. And, but I think the the value we get out of it is huge and the imprint on our culture uh, as a result um, is very important. Yeah. Shaping well, that. What would you say is most unusual or, or perhaps unique about the SCLC culture? You know, I think the, the piece that strikes me the most is, you know, we, we set the tone and we walk the walk. Mm. Um, right. And obviously our values are important to us and, and we hire for those. I think the piece that is really um, hit me the most personally is the fact that our employees take ownership for it. Mm. Um, we regularly have employees involved in our interviewing process. Mm. Um, and you know, they'll, they'll come back and tell us you might like this person uh, or this candidate. <laughs> um, and they're great as an individual, but they're never going to cut it here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And here's why. And, right. um, and so I, I think having, um, an employee-led culture is a really healthy mm, thing. Yeah. We have, um, we call them MVV teams, uh, mission, vision, value teams. And we have um, six different teams. And those teams are focused on different components of, you know, how do we make the company better? Uh, everything from process to, um, you know, on-client uh, delivery work to internal uh, performance management, mm. et cetera. And, and it really does shape the thinking of the company. And I, right. I believe that, um, you know, I completely trust the culture of the company to our employee base. It's, it's really, mm. uh, I think, very healthy. You know, we, we can't walk away from it. We still need to own it. We need to reinforce it. 
you know, buck stops here. We can't do one thing and say another, and and we right. don't. And right. you know, the the culture has to be if that if you get off track, somebody's going to call you out on it, and right. Right. and that happens. You you talked about involving you know broad uh, cultural input from other employees. That's that's so important because at the end of the day, if someone makes it through a couple of rounds of interviews, you hope you've got the qualifications, and it is about fit. Yeah. But but Chris, what do you personally look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Yeah, I think the the couple keys that we hone in on. We do a lot of um, uh, objective evidence interviewing and behavioral uh, interviewing. Yeah. I think it's really um, so much less about what's on the resume mm. and it's so much more about what environment and what criteria for success does that individual need? Because no one individual is the solution, at least not in our company. Mm. And so we're often assembling and reassembling teams to get the right results. Yeah. And I think in order to do that, you have to be willing to acknowledge that I don't know everything. And you also have to be willing to be an invested learner. Um, You have to be curious. You have to be somebody who wants to win or hates to lose, either one. Um, And you have to be someone who has some set of clear um, expectations, something you hold yourself accountable to, because that accountability is really hard. Um, and accountability in organizations is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, so that ability to hold yourself accountable to outcomes and results and, um, and to collaborate and work with team members. It's not about, you know, one thing that I bring or someone else brings, it's the one plus one equals four or five that gets us where we want to go. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, we're just about out of time, but I want to circle back to where we began. You know, there's lots of speculation about what, you know, life looks like in a post-COVID world. And and we don't know if we will be post-COVID, right? You know, we're still yeah. at that stage. We're recording this uh, in, uh, gosh, what are we now? Mid-August and uh, coming up. And this is probably going to be released sometime in September or October. So long past our 14 out. days, that's for sure. And long past our 14 <laughs> day, days, exactly. So, you know, to tell us a little bit about what, what changes do you see ahead, particularly as it relates to your industry? And, and, you know, what that might look like moving forward. Yeah, I, I think there are some real positives that have come out of all of this, maybe by force, right? Mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. we got thrown into this and we made the best of a bad situation. Right. Um, I think some of the new collaboration uh, mechanisms and tools that we've yeah. uncovered and use with our clients and internally have been really fantastic. Mm. Um, I think the ability that we probably didn't test and wouldn't have uh, to have our organizations and the people in them be able to be so adaptable uh, to new situations with customers. Right. You know, we're, we're a contact sport. We're with our customers. Right. And, right. and so now we have to find new ways to bridge gaps. And um, and I think that those are, are things to stick. Those mm-hmm. will stay. Mm-hmm. Um, I really hope uh, that we get back to an environment where we can have, you know, back into office interaction. I think that's also important. The thing that I hear most from our employees is, you know, they miss that. We do a lot as a company, a lot of gatherings, a lot of gratitude meetings, a lot of, you know, you know, chanting out our fellow employees for (laughs) good jobs. And we do those virtually now. We switch to that, but it's just not the same. And, yeah, yeah. and are I you also, using Zoom or Teams or we what, use what, Teams? Teams, yeah, 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 teams yeah. predominantly. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, we've done a number of town hall meetings and we've done those virtually. It's just not the same as getting everybody together and, you know, being in close quarters, but I hope we can get back to that. And frankly, for our, our cities, uh, Pittsburgh in particular, you know, we were a great, uh, secret, right? We had Mm. a mix of everything in our city and we worked really, really hard to create an ecosystem here that was very vibrant. And, you know, right now it's, it's dented for sure. And I think we have an obligation as, you know, businesses and business owners and, you know, community members to, to get back to some normalcy where, you know, the, the businesses that support our environments, um, that they do well when they return to health. And I think there's an obligation, you know, cultural obligation. I think there's an obligation to our restaurants and, and, you know, the city life uh, to get back to some normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, lastly, Chris, um, what career and life advice would you give someone who, you know, perhaps has their eyes on the corner office or, or perhaps, you know, spent half their career in a corporate environment and, and maybe you're thinking about founding a company like you have? Yeah, I would say that uh, it comes down to a few things that I, I talk about a lot. I talk about this uh, in, in the company a lot. You know, continuously challenge yourself to keep learning. Um, you know, don't get tunnel vision. Um, right. Make certain that you have an environment where you're open to healthy conflict. Um, obviously, be driven to outcomes, you know, that brings everybody along. It's not a single-player game. Um be willing to make some tough choices and mm. be willing to put yourself in other people's shoes. Um, yeah, yeah. I think getting those things uh, under your belt and having a regiment that keeps you grounded that way um, and and be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Terrific. Well, Chris Emchek, founder and CEO of SDL Suite Partners, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks, Brant. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.